Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. Well, we did it. I don't want to say I had my doubts, but it was a lot to pull together, and by gum, we pulled it off. We're just back from the 2018 Convergence Convention in the Twin Cities, where I was representing Enterprising Individuals and the Just Enough Trope podcast brand by participating in panel discussions about Star Trek and Marvel films and Guilty Pleasure Cinema and more. And most importantly, we taped a new live episode at the convention focusing on the Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man. We had a great panel of guests. There were about 100 people in attendance. We were joined on the panel by the writer of the episode and an important voice in the early production of TNG, author and screenwriter Melinda Snodgrass. It was an amazing experience, and I'll talk more about it a little later in the show. But if you want more information about our time at Convergence, you can go to facebook.com forward slash EISTpod to learn more and to see a live stream of that taping. But for now, let's get underway. Harlan Ellison writer of speculative fiction, passed away on June 28th of 2018 at the age of 84 at his home in Los Angeles. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1934 to a Jewish family. His father died of a heart attack when Harlan was just 15. Ellison worked in a variety of jobs as a young man, from cab driver to tuna fisherman to short order cook to nitroglycerin truck driver, all of which helped him in his writing, he would later say. He attended Ohio State University until he was expelled 18 months later for a fight with a professor who disparaged his writing skills. Ellison would go on to great success in writing, having over 75 books and 1,700 stories, articles, and screenplays produced or published. For over 20 years after his first success, he would send his former professor a copy of every story he'd published. Ellison's early stories appeared in outlets like Amazing Stories, Fantastic Science Fiction, and EC Comics. His first novel, Web of the City, was written and published during his two-year stint in the Army. In 1962, he moved to Los Angeles and began writing for film and television. He co-wrote the screenplay for the 1966 film The Oscar, which was not a success, but he would go on to a prolific career in TV writing, penning scripts for Burke's Law, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., Route 66, and most famously for science fiction fans, The Outer Limits and the screenplay for the Star Trek episode The City on the Edge of Forever. I don't have to tell you about City on the Edge of Forever or how good it is. You may also know how different the film script is from Harlan's initial draft, which was unwieldy for a 60s TV show's budget, but was sweeping and ambitious in its scope. The story of how City went from a script by Harlan Ellison to the last episode of the first season of Star Trek is a fascinating and often funny one, and you can hear more about it and hear some of Harlan's hijinks while working for Star Trek on our episode about City on the Edge of Forever with Kevin Lauderdale. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. This is a script that went through three separate script editors, and they still turned it around in under a year, which is amazing. Harlan was also indispensable in getting Trek off the ground. It was very important to Roddenberry that Trek be seen as serious science fiction, and he got a list from the writer of the second pilot of Star Trek, Samuel Peoples, of sci-fi writers who would be good contributors of scripts to the original series. Harlan was the facilitator who contacted many of those writers on the show's behalf. He also helped save Star Trek from cancellation after its first season, writing a letter to the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America Association encouraging its members to call for the show's renewal. 
Thank God he did that before Roddenberry rewrote The City on the Edge of Forever screenplay. Harlan won a Hugo Award in 1968 for that screenplay, as well as a Writers Guild Award, and he'd go on to win seven more Hugos and four Nebula Awards. Actually, seven and a half Hugos, according to Harlan, as his story for A Boy and His Dog was adapted into a Hugo Award-winning movie in 1975 by actor and director L.Q. Jones. Harlan also edited the science fiction anthology Dangerous Visions in 1967, which is credited as a linchpin of new wave sci-fi, and several stories in the volume won Hugo and other industry awards. Harlan's work inspired countless individuals, many of whom have been on this very podcast. He's also, in his own words, the most contentious man on earth, and the list of controversies and disputes and lawsuits he's been involved in on his Wikipedia page is truly impressive. But that, of course, isn't the only thing that defines him. For a complete look at the man and his influence on the world of fantasy and science fiction, and sometimes in his own words, I'd recommend the 2007 documentary Dreams with Sharp Teeth, which features interviews and testimonials with personalities like Robin Williams, Neil Gaiman, Peter David, and Ronald D. Moore, all talking about Harlan, including footage and readings by Harlan himself at his lost Aztec Temple on Mars home in Los Angeles. Longtime listeners to the show will know that I often ask guests for their Harlan Ellison stories, and they often share them. Uh, I just as often get told that the guest has a story, but they're not going to repeat it because they don't want to get sued or to bring the wrath of Harlan down on themselves. And that tells you who he is, really. He was ubiquitous, he was influential, and his rage was capricious and legendary, like the supercomputer Am from his Hugo Award-winning short story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, the voice of whom he personally portrayed in the 1995 Cyber Dreams video game adaptation of the story, which he also co-developed. Unlike his creation Am, however, he was fiercely loyal to his friends, and he could be amazingly compassionate. He marched in Selma in 1965 for civil rights and wrote in support of the civil rights movement, he relentlessly promoted and encouraged writers who he thought were gifted. He was married five times, though his last marriage to Susan, who survives him, lasted over 30 years. He would probably, definitely say that this is hacky, but when I think about Harlan and his life and his legacy, I think about Hamlet, summarizing tersely but profoundly the life of his father. He was a man, take him for all in all. And Harlan would have to admit that Billy Shakespeare had some good stuff once in a while. But why let the bard have the last word. He never met Harlan. Let's hear from people who did. I reached out to writers and former guests on the show for their Harlan stories. This first one comes from Paula M. Block, who is an author herself and was an editor for Pocket Books, as well as a former senior director of licensing for Paramount and CBS Pictures. And I present in full the recollection that she sent to me. She says... I met Harlan Ellison a number of times during the 70s, my most active years in fandom. At the early Trek conventions, my friends and I would follow him around like teeny bopper groupies, and once, when we realized our hotel room faced his across a courtyard, we serenaded him with girlish coos. I think he enjoyed it. He castigated us from the window, but he had a grin on his face. And I think he was wearing a bath towel, but thankfully he didn't drop it. I participated in a dramatic presentation of one of Gordon Carlton's brilliant satires of Star Trek episodes, based, of course, on City on the Edge of Forever. It included Harlan as a character, getting shafted by the studio and taking revenge. Uh, here Paula is referring to Gordon Carlton's scripted slideshow called City on the Edge of Whatever, which was occasionally performed at Star Trek conventions in the day, and it features an angry writer named Arlen Hellison. Back to Paula's account. I forget all the details, and I forget which con we presented it at. One of the New York ones, or perhaps Toronto. Harlan was in the audience when we did it, laughing hysterically. Afterwards, he complimented Gordon and told him he was going to sue him. He didn't, of course. 
When I was in grad school at USC, I taught a lit class focusing on my two favorite writers at the time, Harlan and Kurt Vonnegut. I reached out to Harlan and asked him if he'd like to come and speak to my class. He actually called me back and said, Listen, Pumpkin Sweetie, if I did it free for you, I'd have to do it free for everyone. Getting paid his just due was important to Harlan. He was amazingly talented, but writers do get the short end of the stick in Hollywood, and he'd experienced bad treatment like that a lot, which made Harlan very litigious. He famously sued James Cameron over The Terminator because it contained aspects that he felt were derived from one of his short stories. This is uh, when he sued James Cameron over the similarities to, I think it was Soldier, the Outer Limits episode that he wrote. And there's also elements that are similar to Demon with a Glass Hand, the other Outer Limits episode as well. Back to Paula's account. And during the 1990s, after I got my job at Paramount, he would occasionally call me and launch into a tirade about the fact that the studio had made so much money from his Star Trek episode, City on the Edge of Forever, and, as usual, he felt he'd been shafted. Even though the final version of the episode was very different from what he wrote, he still felt that he had not been paid his due. I told him it did little good to talk to me, a humble lackey, but he did, because he had my phone number. None of this made me think any less of him. He was an extremely talented human being and extremely intelligent. I never thought, what a jerk. I was amused and actually felt honored that he chose to vent at me. I was honored to know him, honored to be touched by his greatness, no matter how scathing that touch was. I didn't take it personally. His anger had nothing to do with me. You don't get to meet exceptional talents like him often in life. In his own way, he was as brilliant and innovative as any great artist you can name. Asimov, Picasso, Kubrick, and good old Harlan. You will be missed, but the stories are still in print. Rest in peace, Pumpkin Sweetie, although I suspect he's giving the other angels suries right now. Thanks for that, Paula. Author Kevin Lauderdale shared his Harlan Ellison experiences when he was on the show to talk about the city on the edge of forever, and he talks about becoming a fan of Harlan's from a different avenue. I'm watching Star Trek, and I, I, because I was interested in writing, interested in words, I would pay attention to the credits. I would see who wrote, and I would see... Ted Sturgeon. I would see Norman Spinrad. I would see Harlan Ellison. Mm. And sometimes these names meant things to me, and sometimes they didn't. But growing up in the 70s in Los Angeles, where Mr. Ellison lives, I would start to see his name other places. Reviews in the Comics Journal. Um, articles in LA Weekly, um, in the Los Angeles Magazine. I would hear him on a wonderful radio show called Hour 25, which was on KPFK, the Pacifica Station, in Los Angeles, he was a frequent guest, and I became captivated by him as a storyteller. Um, I appreciate his fiction, but I really love his nonfiction, and him live is an electrifying event. He is a raconteur, my friends. <laughs> you can get um, from Deep Shag Records um, CDs of a lot of his live presentations, a lot of his live Q&As, him reading stories, him telling about his adventures as a writer. They are amazing. So I came to be a really big Harlan Ellison fan. In fact, when the host of Hour 25, Mike O'Dell, died um, much too young, Mr. Ellison took over for a year as host. And so over that year, I really, really became a massive Harlan Ellison fan. So I'm going along. And in 1995, this book is published called Harlan Ellison's The City on the Edge of Forever, the original teleplay that became the classic Star Trek episode. Right. And I pick it up, and I'm like, what is this? There's, like, some other script. I knew, <laughs> oh, for somebody who grew up in Los Angeles, I knew nothing about how film and TV worked. Sure. <laughs> so I figured you wrote a script. You know, if it got published, it got, if it got produced, it got produced, and there you go. Right. I had no idea that the crux of all of this Sturm und Drang is the fact that his episode, 
was rewritten numerous times. But here's the thing. Everybody's episode was rewritten constantly. Oh, sure. This was a brand new TV show. And especially the first season, especially a sophisticated science fiction show. It's not like it was another Western. And the producers might go to the would-be writer. Uh, there's a sheriff. There's a lady who runs a saloon. Every week a bad guy comes into town. Right. Go. Yeah. So nobody knew what Star Trek sounded like. Yeah. And so in reading this, I see Ellison's original ideas, which included things like a firing squad. Right. Uh, um, the guardians of forever, actual people who guard the time, the time portal and things like that. Yeah. And I see how things were rewritten. And I see this amazing, I think it's 40 or 50,000 word prologue by Mr. Ellison talking about all the things that happened and all the things that have happened subsequently. And so I became completely amazed by this. And then just a couple of years ago, Mark Cushman put out These Are the Voyages. Right. A series of books which are as close as you will get to going through the Guardian of Forever and being on the set when the original series was being made. Absolutely fantastic. And I find I read the article on City there, and I find that you know, the average episode may have gotten rewritten six, seven times, and Ellison's was, went through the typewriter about 18 times. Right. <laughs> and so when you approached me, I first thought, you know, I don't really have much to say about anything in particular. And then it occurred to me, no, I do. I've been following one particular writer, and as it happens, one particular episode for literally decades now. Yeah. And, oh, on top of that, just came out. Um, last year, a full-scale dramatic reading, like a radio drama version of that book with Ellison's essay, and actors like LeVar Burton and yes. David Gerald, other people like that, doing voices, acting out the original version of it. Later in the show, Kevin talks about the origins of the feud that would spring up after Ellison's work on City and Ellison's legendary sense of integrity. Mr. Ellison's complaints... Um, focus on sort of two things. First is being rewritten. Well, okay, I can, I'm sorry, things have to be rewritten for the show to make it Star Trek. But also, um, Roddenberry's almost contentious need to constantly reaffirm that. Mm -hmm. um, Roddenberry would go to conventions and he would say, Ellison's script was unfilmable. And so that reflects poorly on Mr. Ellison, who's trying to make a living in mm -hmm. the business. And yet apparently it wasn't so unfilmable that he wasn't invited to pitch story ideas for Star Trek, the motion picture, one, two, three, four, and yeah. I think five as well. Yeah. Roddenberry would say these things. Ellison would correct him on numerous occasions. And Roddenberry would supposedly reply, oh, you're right. I shouldn't have said that. My mistake. You know, it wasn't Scotty. It was something else. But he would then continue to do things. And I'm not an amateur. Psych I'm not a professional psychologist. I'm not an amateur psychologist. Mm -hmm. But I can't help but wonder if some of this was – Roddenberry, as a writer, as a producer, realizing that conflict is the essence of drama, and if you want to keep talking about a show and you want to keep promoting it, it's helpful to have a form of conflict. And if you're going to have a form of conflict, why not with a man whose principles are so high? Mr. Ellison Brooks, no, no change. Um, he once mailed a dead gopher to the comptroller of a publishing company <laughs> who violated the rules of the contract. They found an ad into the middle of one of his books, something that happened in the 60s and 70s. No, you can't. He, Mr. Ellison says he plays by the rules. It's like his integrity is of such a level that he will not allow that to be broken. And if you constantly pick at him, he will constantly pick back. 
Ellison, as we've mentioned before, was instrumental in keeping Star Trek on the air after its first season, as Kevin here explains. Mr. Ellison also saved Star Trek to a certain degree. There was a point early in the first season where things were not going good and the suits were threatening to cancel it. Yes. Roddenberry came to him and said, you got to help me. And he, Harlan Ellison created something called The Committee, right. which had at the top of its letterhead the biggest names, A.E. Van Gogh, um, uh, Frank Herbert, um, Harlan Ellison, all these top writers. And basically it was a letter that was sent out to you know, everybody in the science fiction community saying, we finally have an adult science fiction show on TV. Mm-hmm. Suits are threatening it. Please write in, write to sponsors helping to support it. So Ellison created this amazing story, which mm-hmm. got rewritten. Okay. He helped to save Star Trek with the committee. And from sure from his point of view, why is Roddenberry still saying these things about me? Sci-fi author and Generations Geek co-host Scott Pearson had an experience with Harlan that he recounted on his blog in 2014. Scott writes, In the early 1990s, I worked at Barnes & Noble. It had been announced that Harlan Ellison was publishing his original teleplay for the Star Trek episode The City on the Edge of Forever. This was exciting news. The bad blood between Ellison and Gene Roddenberry over the script was legendary. One customer placed a special order for the book, and as I was in charge of special orders and also a fan of Ellison and Trek, I was keeping a close watch for its arrival. The announced publication date came and went, but no book. I called up Borderlands Press to see what was going on and found myself speaking with the publisher, Thomas Monteleone, whose name sounded familiar to me. He explained that he was a writer too, and I realized that I had read one of his books, The Secret Sea, a sequel to 2000 Leagues Under the Sea. We chatted about that for a bit, and he explained that Ellison's book was running behind schedule, but they were trying to get it wrapped up. Time passed. I checked back in with Borderlands a few times as the book came up on my unfilled special orders report. One day I was told that Ellison had instructed the publisher to have his increasingly impatient fans waiting for the books to call him directly. I was given a phone and a fax number. Yeah, fax, it was 20 years ago. I scoffed at the idea, like Ellison wants people calling him and nagging him about the book, as I dialed the number. Someone picked up and a gruff voice said, Yeah? Holy shit. I knew right away that this was actually Ellison. I was on the phone with Harlan Ellison. I explained why I was calling, then didn't have a chance to say much else for maybe 15 minutes as Ellison went off on one of his trademark rants against Gene Roddenberry and Paramount. He was hilarious, joking darkly that Roddenberry had died before Ellison could get even with him. Roddenberry had passed away the year before, in October 1991. He explained that his introduction for the script was still growing, that he just couldn't stop adding stories about his long-running feud with Roddenberry. Outside of calls about getting published, it was the most amazing phone call I'd ever had. More time passed. I had another brief call with Ellison, a nice little chat. Still more time passed. Then, he won a Bram Stoker Award in 1993 for his novella Mephisto and Onyx. I felt like congratulating him, but felt self-conscious about phoning him again. I didn't want to be that guy, taking advantage of having his number. I decided on a compromise. I would fax him my congrats and also ask about City, which still wasn't out. I jotted a quick note and hit send. It seemed like the sheet of paper hadn't even fed all the way through the machine when I was paged. There's a guy on the phone that wants to talk to you, my disbelieving co-worker told me. He says he's Harlan Ellison. Oh, sh. Ellison does not come across as a guy who's going to call some bookseller to thank him for the congratulations. Something must be wrong. I took a deep breath and answered the phone. Did you just fax me? Ellison growled. Yes. Why? Just to chat? Yes, sir. 
I think I did call him sir. It seemed like the thing to do. Well, you just woke up my sick wife and me. That was only the start of him ripping me a new one. It turns out his fax machine was in his bedroom, and it belatedly hit me. It was two hours earlier in California. So now I was being Ellisoned. I quietly took my chewing out. When he had finished, I apologized, explaining that I had assumed I was sending the fax to an office, so I had not even considered the time difference between Minnesota and the West Coast. After a moment of consideration, he allowed that he could see that, but... You have my phone number, too? Yes. Lose it. Yes, sir. So that's how I got Ellison's phone number, had the beginning of a beautiful friendship, and then poured it all down the drain. Thank you, Scott. Alan Gratz is an author and shared two stories about Harlan Ellison that I shared on the supplemental episode 2.8, and here they are. Take it away past me. They both come from a certain Dragon Con in Atlanta. Alan tells us that he was at a panel with Harry Knowles, remember him? Uh, Ray Harryhausen and Ray Bradbury. Wait a minute. Harry Knowles, Ray Harryhausen, Ray Bradbury. Okay, all right. Uh, Anyway, uh, Harlan was there as well, I guess. And at one point he got up to go to the next room and tell Guar that they were playing too loud. (laughs) Okay. All right. um, That's the end. No, there's more. Uh, (laughs) Harlan was uh, also ranting about something until Ray Bradbury turned to him and said, Harlan, shut up. And he did. So as Alan says, I guess when Ray Bradbury tells you to shut up, you shut up. Also, if he told me something wicked this way comes, I'd, I'd run in the other direction. Uh, I guess later on in the con, he was standing in line to get some books signed by Harlan Ellison. Uh, you could only get two signed. Uh, that was the limit. And that isn't necessarily a Harlan thing because, you know, a lot of these guys have a lot of fans and they bring shopping carts full of stuff. And that's exactly what happened in this situation. He was with his uh, girlfriend at the time, now wife. And they were behind uh, a dad and his son. And once the uh, hammer came down about the fact that they needed to get two things signed, he got smart and he gave two books to his kid, who I'm getting the sense was at grade school, not very old. He also actually asked Alan and his girlfriend if they would t- take some books as well. I, Alan had some books, so gave them to the girlfriend. So they get up there and Harlan, he smells something's wrong. Uh, and he actually says to the kid, oh, this is um, this is pretty heady stuff for a grade school kid. What's your favorite part of this book? I'm assuming it's Repent Harlequin or something. And the kid, you know, of course, he, he just shrugs. He has nothing to say. And that's when Ellison went off on him. Ellison just starts railing on this kid about cheating the system and standing in line. There's all these people back here who've actually read his books. And they want to get their stuff signed. The kid is pretty much crying, uh, and the dad is gone at this point. The dad has got his book signed, and he just kept going. So the kid's all there by himself. Finally, uh, Harlan relents and um, signs the kid's stuff, probably just to get him to leave. Uh, So then Alan and his girlfriend steps up, and Harlan says, These books are actually yours, I hope. And they're like, uh, yeah? Uh, Good thing he didn't ask any questions. They got their stuff signed, gave the stuff back to the dad, but... That is completely in character for what I've heard my entire life about what Harlan Ellison is like. Whoa, whoa, me from the past. You've had your chance. It's my time now. I've got the glass hand here. Thank you to Alan for your recollections. I was never all that familiar with Harlan Ellison's work specifically. Like I knew about him. I knew... I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, City on the Edge of Forever, Repent Harlequin, and I had read those. But as far as reading some of the uh, 40 novels and 1,700 uh, articles 
and uh, everything else. Um, I had not really, I'm just not real well read on him. Um, I'm, I think I've read Dangerous Visions. Uh, it might have been a long time ago, but so I'm not really familiar with his work. I'm intimately familiar with the influence that his work has had on all of science fiction and will continue to have. And, you know, when it comes to sci-fi, I like um, men in, in chrome rocket ships, but it's new wave. That's the kind of thing that I'm picking up. Like, that's the kind of thing that I'm reading. And so, you know, I'm forever grateful to him for that. Um, I've got that thing going where, you know, somebody dies and then you go, oh, yeah, oh, so-and-so. And then you get into their stuff and it's, you know, it's too late because they're gone. Their stuff will forever remain. Um, but you feel like you've missed the train. And so that's kind of where I'm at. Some of the things that I did know about Harlan, um, his uh, outsized personality, uh, has probably influenced me um, in ways that uh, are not positive. Um, but his integrity is something that I really admired about him. And something that you see in the documentary Dreams with Sharp Teeth that somebody, uh, I think a childhood friend mentions about him, um, is that he he's worried about his self-image, not in a way of, or, or I don't know, maybe it is um, a lack of self-confidence like in his worth, but like he's just, he was always terrified of people not respecting him or, or making fun of him, which is ridiculous. See seven and a half Hugos and everything that he has completed and written and the respect that he's got. And he's still somebody who can just, you know, wonder if you think that he's good or not. Um, and it goes back to, the, they sort of tell a story about his childhood and about sort of the brutality that he suffered at his, at the hands of his classmates, even while sort of fighting back. And I think we can all identify with that. It just makes him uh, very human. Um, there's a couple things that I learned about him that I do myself, not comparing myself to Harlan Ellison, but things that taught me that I'm maybe I'm on the right track, <laughs> things that I don't have to feel bad about. He types with two fingers, <laughs> with his two index fingers. And I've always, uh, I, for a guy who completed an entire year of keyboarding class uh, in high school and learned the home row and was up to 120 words a minute, and is now down to like 50 with two fingers and uh, no home row. Um, if he can do it, I can do it. And so I'm going to keep doing that. Something else that I appreciated uh, hearing him say is that he created these magical, amazing things. And yet he continually reminded everyone that it's not a job. It is not magic. It is, or it is a job. It's just writing. We, we treat the writer like this, you know, shaman uh, who is bringing things from the other side. And in many ways they are, but as I've learned in my own writing career, you just got to do it. You just have to sit down and do it and you're going to do it. And it's not going to be great sometimes. I mean, sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not going to be great. And sometimes you just have to make a misshapen clay thing. And then later you're going to come back. And if that clay's not dry, uh, you're going to shape it into something that looks a little more like a human or whatever it is you're trying to sculpt. You know, he was the quintessential rock star writer and yet he he knew he had no illusions about the fact that it's not a, being a rock star. There's no magic. You just have to do it, which I really um, respected. And so, yeah, I, I, I was going through my notes and going through old shows and I was hit by the staggering amount of times that I've mentioned him on the show or asked guests about him on the show. 
And that's not going to stop. In fact, that's probably going to be a big thing in season three. So look out for that. But you just can't, you can't talk about sci-fi and he's not part of the conversation. Uh, something that I always ask people when I get a chance to is if they know what the star lost is. And nobody ever does, which is no surprise. It is a not very good Canadian TV show from the early 70s that he was instrumental in developing. He was there up until the very end, and then something went wrong, like it often does, and he took his name off it. And so you see developed by Cordwainer Bird uh, in the titles for The Star Lost. But if you can find The Star Lost, I would recommend it. It is a weirdo uh, 70s sci-fi uh, in the vein, not as good as, but in the vein of something like a Blake 7, I think there's a lot you can get out of it. It's a generation ship story, and um, I always love those. So let me go ahead and just put my personal plug in, my experiences with Harlan's work, put that out there. He probably wouldn't like it because he didn't ultimately like what came out of it, but I know a lot of his DNA is in there. And so I say check out The Star Lost because it's great. And... That's about it. I don't really know what else to say, um, but I appreciate everyone who has given things to say uh, and said things for this show. And it's just something that we're going to have to deal with going forward, that Harlan's not around anymore. So goodbye, Harlan. There's more in the world now than when you came into it, and a lot of that is because of you. Of all the books and films and stories I mentioned on the show, whether by Harlan or about him, they're all available on Amazon. And if you want to pick them up, I'll have links in the show notes where you can find them. You can click on those links or you can click through our banner on Enterprising Individuals, and you'll be brought to the AmazonMarketplace.com. When you click those links, or when you click through the banner and purchase something on Amazon, a small part of that purchase goes to help our show. It's no extra cost to you, and this will count for anything. It's not just Star Trek stuff or Harlan stuff. You can actually bookmark that banner on our site, and if you click on that banner or through that bookmark to get to Amazon, Anything you buy, no matter what it is, that same deal applies. We get a little bit of that to keep the warp core lit here. Books, electronics, household supplies, pet costumes, doesn't matter. Just visit Amazon through our link, and you are supporting the show every time you shop. And maybe you're saying, I've got everything Harlan Ellison has ever published. I've got The Star Lost on Bootleg Region 2 DVD. I've got everything he's ever written down. I've got a cocktail napkin with his phone number on it from Worldcon 77. I've got some snow he wrote his name in in my deep freeze. To which I would say, yikes. But I would also say, if you like the kind of discussion with our charming guests that you hear on Enterprising Individuals and also maybe hearing some Harlan Ellison stories, why not support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show for a small monthly donation, and you can get access to our exclusive subscriber content like our live shows, including our live show with Melinda Snodgrass at Convergence 2018, which went off without a hitch. It was delightful, and she was delightful. You can also hear my DS9 rewatch recaps, plus our new episode commentaries debuting soon. They are coming. You can get show merchandise and more. Just head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod, and for as little as $1 a month, you will become a member of the crew. As always, anything you can contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. You can see a video from that live show on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash EISTpod, but I use the verb see in its most general sense 
as that video is of supreme potato quality. A much better way to experience the show is through your ears. And that episode will soon be available on our Patreon to crew members. One dollar gets you an eminently listenable episode where I and a panel of guests grill Melinda Snodgrass about the measure of a man, the early days of TNG, and more. Either way, check us out on Facebook. Follow the show at EISTPod on Twitter. You can always email the show at EISTPOD at gmail.com to let us know who you'd like us to talk to on our next live show or to just say hello. We're waiting to receive your transmission. And that is it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcasts listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts? Make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write us a little review if the spirit moves you. And please give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. It really does help out. If you're not on Apple Podcasts listener, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we'd be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals. You may be the captain of the Enterprise. You may have saved the Federation from the Borg and saved yourself from cybernetic servitude. You may even be a pretty good flute player. But everyone has a nemesis that no distance of light years can separate us from. A person or persons who know how to wound us vitally, even as they show us who we really are. Author Jeffrey Lang returns to the show next week to discuss one of the most unorthodox and most affecting episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, its family, next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying, live long and prosper. 